internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover what will be God when we reach the side of the ocean floor. I want to get into more of the connection between Spengler, Avola, Nietzsche, and uh, the Grail Cycles. Because, as I was saying before, it's become quite clear that it looks to me, anyway, uh, I, I have a hunch that Spengler and Nietzsche have, have based their perspectives on history on this uh, Hesiod, Theogony, uh, Ages of Man. So, of course, any, any, anybody participating has read the Theogony, um, please take a mic and uh, enlighten us. But uh, I would like to try to draw some parallels with, with Spengler and Nietzsche between all of this. Um, Spurgler, if you're able to talk, uh, please join. And um, if anybody else wants the mic, ask for it. And uh, we will get the next part of this conversation started properly in just a moment. Um, trying to get Athenian back in here, but I would like to just say something that's not um, totally related. That's why I didn't say it before. But um, yeah, for sure, I do think it's interesting uh, when we talked about the uh, chaos, female being chaos and male being order. Um, I do agree with that. Mm -hmm. I do think that that's that's generally the way it is. Obviously, you know, um, females, you know, they, I mean, that's just the way it is. The feminine doesn't have direction. The masculine is the director. Um, it even, you know, Spengler even says, makes the comment that uh, females or women are history. Men drive history. And there's a constant tension between those two. Uh, but I do think it's important that there's also, I do feel like that that's true on a macrocosmic level, but then you can actually go deeper. And there are times where, in a sense, uh, sometimes the roles reverse, kind of like with the Tao, you know, where... Uh, one thing represents one, one the other represents the other, but they lean into each other and press into each other and then sometimes like switch and become the other. And I do think that sometimes, you know, you do see like, for example, in the longhouse, like, you know, in, in, in the gynocratic state we see now, um, it, 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 it can't totally be summarized by saying that it's uh, only chaos, that, oh, everything's chaotic, because I feel like in a way we're actually like we're orderly in all the worst parts. And then we're chaotic in all the worst parts because it's certainly a very orderly thing that, you know, the IRS keeps track of like everything you do and can like throw you in jail for not, you know, reporting your crypto gains, um, you know, but it's also chaotic in that, you know, there's no structure to what people are taught uh, growing up and then it's a free for all in that way. So uh, it's an interesting discussion to have uh, on, you know, the whole order versus chaos thing and how it gets deeper and deeper and you find dichotomy within dichotomy the further you go. Now that was all I said. It was just an interesting thought. Yeah. Well, you know, again, this is another midwit thing, but I'll just mention it real quick because it is relevant uh, in that the yin yang has uh, a little black in the white and a little white in the black. Now my perception of that is that the opposite or the uh, not, it's not always it's not always actually a balance of opposites, but um, yeah, my perception is that the the well the chaos seeps into the order, and 
it's held at bay in that one little circle for a time, but then it metastasizes, like I said, with uh, Melania and the rot, and it grows, and it, like, risks to take it over. And, but hopefully the same thing happens in the chaos with order. And this is basically, like, the patriarchy versus the matriarchy, right? The, the matriarchy provides, well, not the matriarchy, but, like, the maternal spirit that the, mat- the matriarchy is derived from provides uh, something vital and essential to, like, uh, civilization. But if it becomes uh, too powerful, if it metastasizes, as I'm saying, it starts to stifle uh, the masculine. And the masculine, of course, is what, like, runs civilization. Now, I've seen it argued that, like, Rome is an example of, like, too much of the masculine. But honestly, like... I don't really think that exists. Like, I don't think that you can have like too much masculine or too much like, like a metastasis of like the ma- the masculine because the masculine like keeps order and imposes order. And I don't actually think you can have too much order. And this is why I like Evola's grail book better than Campbell's grail book because Cam- Campbell talks about the wasteland as being like, you know, too much order, like controlling of thought. Like the wasteland is like everyone like rotely going through like uh, the motions of like uh, uh, prescribed thought, which like I get what he's saying <laughs> in the sense that you can call like now the wasteland because like wokeness and all that is like people like rotely going through like this prescribed, you know, egalitarian, uh, 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 woke, feminist, communist, uh, third worldist form of thought right and they're just like going through motions while that's true all of these things are like feminized like bug men ways of thought so the reason why we're in the wasteland is not because like people have like their minds being controlled because like during rome and during like earlier times in america and in the west when thought was not allowed to flourish that was a good thing And that's what Nietzsche thinks. Like, that's what Nietzsche says. Like, keeping strict parameters on the thoughts and the words and the actions of, like, the people is good. The people who want to do degenerate and fucked up bad things that will, like, tear civilization apart, they're the ones who are complaining about it. They're the ones who have a problem with it. And I was saying elsewhere, like, on on a different podcast episode, When you talk about, like, a good king versus a bad king, because they say that, like, the problem with hereditary, like, the hereditary monarchy is that, like, there's good kings and bad kings. Well, when they say bad kings, they really just mean that he was, like, mean to the little people. But it doesn't mean that he, like, brought down the, brought down the, the, the kingdom and the kingdom, like, collapsed under him. I mean, Nero fucking burned down, like, all of central Rome. And it, like didn't hurt Rome at all. It was like, wasn't bad. Nero gets this bad reputation, but uh, nothing came of it. Like the, the, the empire was just as powerful all the way through the whole time. So I don't really think you can have a metastasis of like the male patriarchal imposition of order because I think that like forced, like, not, I was going to say hegemony. Well, yeah, hegemony. I was going to say homogenization of thought. But really, like, forced hegemony of thought. And let's be honest. Like, we say we're right-wingers. Like, I don't play this fucking free speech game. Like, free speech is bad. It obviously is terrible. 
It's like has no redeeming qualities. And people are like, oh, you say that, but like, look at you. You you're uh, exercising your free speech now. It's like, sure, I am, but I would gladly give it all up tomorrow if everyone else got theirs taken away. Uh, you know, under a masculine regime, of course. Like that's the stipulation. It has to be under a masculine regime. So it's not that, and this is the last thing I'll say, and we'll have a Vitruvian come in, and then you guys can all talk. Uh, the capstone of what I'm saying is that it's not that there's like a metastasis of male power. It's not like there's too much male power. It's not that Rome had an overgrowth of masculine power. It's that men become derelict in their duties of being the patriarch. That's what happens. The state becomes derelict in its duty. Uh, law starts to supersede custom and tradition. And law, written law, is a bugman-like trick. And that is the slave revolt. Written law, because written law, for example, is one of, well, actually, I don't even think it actually got written down until later, but it became a traditional custom law in the Roman Empire that if uh, a, a lord or a man or an aristocrat dies and he doesn't have a male heir, the woman, like, gets to, like, run the estate okay they used to not get to run it if the, if it died the estate got like given to like a friend or an uncle or a third cousin or the state itself took it over and women like like uh entreated the state probably with the help of their fucking boyfriends or or some merchant who wanted to make money off of them so they entreated the state and the senate to like get the state the the estate legally given to the woman when the husband died. And of course they, they let their, their like degenerate boyfriend, like run it to run it into the ground or they let lepers and slaves and homeless rabble hang out all over the place and uh, bring it into ruin. They set up hostile networks for Christians, which, you know, I know you guys probably think that's a good thing, but actually what it did was serve to directly serve to undermine the Roman power, uh, and it just encouraged, it gave, like, mobs of rabble places to congregate so they could, like, plan their takeover of the Roman Empire. So that's that. I, I'll get back to Nietzsche after this, but I, I just ranted. So, um, Vitruvian, go ahead and respond. Yeah, no, I don't want to take too much time. I just, um, I can take my hand off here. Um, yeah, so... Oh, no, it's, it's back. Whatever. So anyway, um, the only pushback I would give uh, as far as the uh, there's no there's no such thing as mis mis metastasization of masculine would be that important thing to talk about is that we're not n when we say like, for example, when we're talking about Elden Ring, when we say um, the the excess of masculine versus excess of feminine, we are not talking about necessarily uh, human masculine or feminine we're sort of talking about these primordial forces that the what we know as genders are downstream from so like the grail itself like the grail is seen as feminine it's always attended to by uh female attendants because it's the nourishing lifeblood it's the womb right that that, that 
provides all the sustenance you would need and injects the land with energy and life. And then the other side of it would be the sword or the lance that is the masculine that, that destroys the unworthy who try to take the grail and use it for their own ends, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say there is such thing as too much order in the sense of that's the cycle of cultures. For example, like the church, right? At a certain point in the wake of Rome's collapse, the church was the unifying force and it brought order and it was just the only institution that had the chance to do it. And there's a lot of discussion on how Christian it was. You know, a lot of the, the pagan spirit found home in the church as well, you know, things like the Crusaders. But the point is the church really held the West together uh, after Rome collapsed, it saved a lot of the Roman knowledge uh, and, it, and it provided structure. And so at that time, when the church was putting down a lot of heresies, you know, Gnostic heresies or whatever else, you know, uh, at that time, it was necessary. Not because all of those Gnostic ideas were bad because if you go read uh, there's a lot of good stuff in gnostic literature i don't i don't like the whole material world as a prison thing but the, but like there the, the idea of the demiurge and everything there's some good stuff if you go read the nakamati scrolls but at that time you didn't have time to like complicate things with a bunch of different discussions and a bunch of different people talking about all these ideas you kind of had to have like one singular truth that everyone was going to follow and it was going to motivate everyone the same way so that you could, you know, uh, fight back the barbarian hordes, or for example, you know, in the uh, in the Byzantine Empire, you know, you had Turks to worry about. You just didn't have time for that. However, at a certain point, the church becomes decadent, and that that very same order and that very same universal control that the church had that kept everything going and gave things life once the church starts to degrade and go through that natural cycle of life that like spengler would say all cultures go through once it becomes old and decrepit the church or whatever institution and, and campbell actually talks about this in creative mythology as well at a certain point that institution whatever it may be now it's the science institution um the the it becomes a hindrance because it still has all that control it's still standing in between the individual and the grail you know the nourishing lifeblood of humanity but it's not using that lifeblood so now it's sort of a you can't have it but i don't have it nobody has it nobody can touch the grail anymore so now that's when the wasteland starts at that point you do need a little bit of chaos because you need someone who just kind of there's usually some group of people that just get tired of it they kind of flip out you know, they, they start burning things or whatever, and they rebel. And so in that sense, you will get a chaotic movement. Um, and so that's where I would say there's a time for chaos and there's a time for order, right? Um, there's a time when the chaos is just totally formless and you have to have someone to shape it into something. But there's a time when those structures get old and you need, you need to let things go again. And that's when free speech might be important. Like even what we do now, you know, we can say, well, we, I would certainly like a, a king to take over and, um, you know, I, I would give up my free speech for a good king now, but right now free speech is the only way we have a chance to influence things 
and bring about you know whatever king we want so uh it's sort of a cycle right and that, that's mainly my point is that I, I think there's a time for both uh and like right now for example evola would say there's it's more of a time for chaos because now uh and nietzsche would say it too now that god is dead now that tradition has uh decayed and entropy has taken it over it's now time for the individual to assert himself. Uh, and that's going to be a very chaotic time when you have a bunch of great individuals asserting their own wills that may or may not line up. They may clash. You may have a sort of Heracletian uh, tension of opposites going on all over the place. But at a certain point, you you let that chaos have its way for a time, a new order will get born. So that's a long-winded thing, but that, that's basically my response. But I don't have anything else. No, you're right. And I, I agree with that. I don't necessarily think it refutes it though because uh these things come in cycles and uh different times in the cycle you need different things so i always like to say that actually i don't think democracy for example is inherently like corrupt or degenerate itself it it gets that way over time uh but so does a monarchy it just doesn't happen as fast uh, and I wanted, well, I'm going to let some other speakers come in here. I want to draw some parallels, though, to like the, the cycles of history and the times of the Romans and the Greeks and us and Nietzsche, Spengler, etc. Uh, finally, your hand's been up, and then Jan after that, and then Spurgler. Um, maybe we, we can bring Spurgler in after that because we have some stuff we want to talk about with Spengler. And Dark Raven is here. If he wants to take the mic, I know he's read Spangler as well. So uh, go ahead, final. Uh, you know, Jan actually had his hand up way before me. It just uh, it went down for a little bit, but he was up before me. Well, but I appreciate you guys, uh, your patience and waiting so long. Uh, I really do. So uh, go right ahead. All right. Thank you, uh, Final. Um, I'll let you uh, go afterwards. Yeah. And so I think one of the most interesting characters is St. Augustine. I think he should be kind of incorporated because he's, he's kind of, you know, he's most famous for the confessions and, you know, also the kind of uh, the city of God. And he was writing at the time, you know, 365. Uh, it's the end of the kind of Roman Empire. Sorry, I lost my voice, so uh, don't mind me if I'm all scratchy. Um, and he's writing at the end of the Roman Empire, 365. And he's describing this transition in some sense, right? You know, this... The world is in chaos. This typical supply lines are kind of being broken up. But he's also talking about how many of the Roman elite are transitioning into the church, right? They're becoming bishops. They're leading monasteries. Um, and so there is this kind of, you know, you know, this kind of stabilizing force that Insul was talking about. Um, you know, Insul also had this point earlier about, um, you know, where are we today, right? Are we in a kind of more orderly than ever? Are we more chaotic than ever? Um, I, I think there's some parallel to the violence question. You know, where, where arguably there's less violence, but you know the potential for violence is much higher. This is kind of the very Girardian idea of you know kinetic versus potential violence, right? Nuclear weapons is all this sort of violence. Like we cannot duel each other. We cannot um, you know invade countries. We cannot have these organized, directed violence. Instead, we get this kind of anarcho-tyrannical violence that everybody likes to point out, right? We get pushed into the subway tracks. We get knifed, you know, in the back of our, you know, in our neighborhoods, um, and this is general um, random violence, which is, I think, more of the chaotic nature uh, than the orderly nature. Uh, go ahead, final. You know, I I, I agree with uh, a lot of what Petruvian and what Young were saying. Um, I think, and just to mention Hesiod real quick because uh, you brought it up, but uh, the Theogony is a separate work from uh, 
his uh, ages of man. But um, but anyways, uh, I agree with I disagree with some of the Evolian thought that the golden age is this age with this universal ruler that we have this extremely structured tiered society. I view that sort of a uh, society as a as sort of a the declining days of our society the roman empire by the time it was an empire it was a culture in decline i mean it was sure they were at the height of their power but they had a their culture itself was declining a lot of their institutions were declining i wouldn't want to live in nero's rule i would personally rather live as a roman citizen you know during the days of the republic and it's the same with greece i would rather live in the in the city-states of Greece rather than the Hellenistic kingdoms. But um, I see these as a... So this is where my main gripe with Evola is, and a lot of Evola, is this idea that the days of the universal ruler are the the prime golden age. I, I, I view this chaotic age of this kind of barbarous age as the inception of, of a culture you know, the days of the Germanic barbarians, the sea peoples. This is, in my opinion, you know, the the youth of a civilization, the the gold the true golden age in my opinion. This is very interesting. These are really, really good comments. Uh final age, I don't know if you know uh war crimes encourager. He's here in the space right now. He if you I don't know if you were there for uh our talk last time, but he was saying what you're saying. Um, war crimes, I'm not trying to mischaracterize your arguments so you can take the mic at any point. But me and him kind of like debated because he was basically saying what you're saying and I was saying what I had said earlier, that the golden age was when Marka came. Uh, the golden age is when order is like implemented. Um, I, I still disagree with you, but I get your point and I get his point, but uh, it needs to be it needs to be fleshed out. We we need to talk about this in much more minute detail. Now it may end up that you still disagree with Evola, but I want to at least make my case a little bit stronger. I, and um, I, but I, I I guess to to expand on that is I don't necessarily disagree with you know having this super tiered structured society. It's necessary in a society in a true empire that consists of you know multiple peoples. But in these yeah I understand in the that. early days when it's you know just the uh, when the the bulk of the population is like Anglo-Saxon England. It's a fairly, not totally, but it's a fairly egalitarian society among the landowning men. And same with the early days of the Roman Republic. The, the individuals within society who, who are full citizens have a lot more power and autonomy and freedom. And I, I think that is... Hey, I'm sorry, guys. I, I fucked up. I think I muted everybody. I didn't mean to do that. You should be good now. Oh, Where did I cut off? You were talking about uh, being a Republican Aristo and not one of the demos. Yeah, what I was getting at is when you're in the early days of these societies, so like Anglo-Saxon England or the Greek city-states, you know, when you were a full citizen, you had – those who were full citizens had a fair amount of autonomy and freedom within their own societies – 
and by the time of you know the Roman Empire, the the uh, age of absolutism and things like this, the the landowning you know citizen, not necessarily gentry, but rural countryside uh, aristocrats lost a lot of their freedoms, and you start to see the different. And those are the people who who mainly produce, you know, the culture that makes up a society. Yeah. Sorry, I, I just want to chime in here and just say I, I do. I actually agree with Final Age in that sense. Uh, I think that when we say what's better or worse is is obviously going to be subjective because you know I mean some people might go well, you know, civilization is what produces the works that we remember them by. Like you know, uh, you wouldn't have pyramids or you wouldn't have you know, all these these elaborate Roman and Greek buildings without civilization or whatever. Um, and and this is this is why we consider them so great, because this is what we see. Um, but that's also like our perspective that that's not like their perspective. Right. Like like we can go, wow, the the uh, Egyptians were so great because look at these pyramids. But at the time the pyramids were being built, you know, you, you, a lot of the individuals there um, may have they may not have had as happy of a life as when they were just like, like you said, in the barbarous age, when they were just cruising around acting upon their pure will and like basically fertilizing uh, that culture. And so, uh, you know, and I do think that ties directly to Spengler when he talks about the estates, you know, I mean, in the original um, inception of a culture, that is what it is. It's the spirit of the countryside versus the city and the countryside is where it starts. And everything is, like you said, it's more free. People can do what they want in a certain sense, but everyone there, the stock is so good that everyone who's allowed to do what they want, these, you know, Aryan barbarians, if you will, these people can be trusted with that freedom and them acting upon that freedom is what creates everything that eventually turns into this great civilization. But yes, at a certain point, and that's in the you know, Spengler talked about the first estate and the second estate being, I want to say the nobility and then the clergy, right? And then those are the ones that really build the culture. But when things transition to civilization is when the third estate becomes a bigger thing. And the third estate is your, um, workers right you're your craftsmen you know and you can they, they may form guilds or whatever it's your worker class your blue collar guys and uh and a lot of republicans are infected with this stuff too right with like blue collars are the ones that built this country not the the aristocrats that that's that's like how the slave mindset starts is when it becomes no hey we're the workers we're the ones that build things we should have an equal place and then you have to have a city to house and keep all of these workers safe and give them that platform and so it is and then therefore the first two estates have to move into the city because they can't keep control and they can't keep directing the culture without being there right next to the third estate but in doing that they basically again like final age sort of said they basically have to forfeit their freedoms and their control and they unknowingly become subservient to the greater mass of workers and that does lead to more engineering feats and great buildings and great inventions and roads and etc etc but yes the original organic spirit which was just these men acting upon their will slowly goes away and so that is kind of the point that i think final was making is that um the you know, it depends on what you want to consider good, but um, the minute a civilization has the level of structure that it can build great cities, that means that it's not creating 
uh, new virile spirit anymore. Now it's just crystallizing that spirit. And again, Spengler talks about this, you know, with the uh, transition as well. These are all excellent comments that I agree with a thousand percent. Let me make it clear, final agent and everybody else, that when I'm talking about the Roman Empire, uh, I am not talking about the Golden Age at all. It is definitely a late decadent uh, era, for sure. And the Christian, the ascension of Christianity is the uh, Silver Age uh, takeover. And then the Bronze Age revolt, of course, is going to be the the German, the Germanic warlords and the Germanic barbarians and the Huns coming in. Although the Huns are actually a little bit different. And then, so the thing is, is that I think what you're talking about is like an earlier age of myth and an earlier age of heroes. So you have to go way, way, way back if you're talking about Rome. You have to go way, way back to basically the time of Homer um, and the, the, the Mycenaean Dark Age. That's the primordial uh, era. And the, the, well, that's the, you see, you go back to. This is if you, this is if you view classical history as Western history, which Spengler doesn't. No, 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 not exactly. No, no, I'm not saying that because it's two different things. Um, here, let me explain because I, I get what your point is. But I was talking about like Nero, right, and and the imperial era of Rome, especially the first hundred years of the empire. I was not referring to that as the golden age. That was like the end of the golden age. That was when the golden age was basically uh, running out of steam and and crumbling apart and becoming decadent, and the silver age was beginning to to come in. So for the classical world, which is the Apollonian civilization of Spengler, it would be like to equate it to the Grail Cycle and to the Elden Ring. The actual time of the Mycenaean uh, Bronze Age would, at where, when like the Trojan War supposedly really happened before the Bronze Age collapse, would be like the at the time of Avalon. The Bronze Age collapse would be like the the primordial era of chaos <laughs> that brought down the, the Golden City or the Shining City, implemented chaos, civilization was destroyed, and a Dark Age was, uh, was born. Okay, that's the primordial time. The Golden Age is when the warlords come and reestablish control. And the people of the Greek Dark Age, like, established the city-states. According to Nietzsche, this is like the Blonde Beast era, when the, uh, the chaos is sort of, like, brought under control, and strong men who, by virtue only of their martial ability and their ability to wage war, are able to establish, like, waypoints uh, for civilization to, like, establish itself. Then... So that's the golden age, okay? Then you start to come in a little bit later with uh, like Socrates in them. And this is like the beginning of the golden age, like decline. <laughs> and Nietzsche talks about this in Twilight of the Idols. And Athenian, please like come in at any point here. Um, he talks about the rationalism that comes in. We 
like analytic philosophy and like Anglos and Western philosophy like to talk about the Greek enlightenment as like the high point of Greek civilization. But Nietzsche says it's like actually a degeneration of the high point of Greek civilization when the strong like warrior men were like no longer able to assert their control and these like powdered wrists, soft handed, you know, uh, people were starting to uh, take over. Now, it's not exactly that simple because this is really just the beginning because people like Socrates and Alcibiades and all these guys, uh, uh, some of the playwrights, I think maybe it was Aeschylus, these guys were all like soldiers, okay? But they were like philosopher soldiers. So, but the rationalism is the beginning of the decline. It's like when the degeneracy starts to set in. Fast forward all the way to Imperial Rome, you really have what I'm talking about. You really have the rise of the merchant class. The rise of the merchant class are people who start to have political control because they have money, only because they have money. They make money through trade, and uh, then they use that to like buy political favors and like buy political power, and they start to have real political power. Uh, and they really are like the effeminate urbanite men who like didn't get where they got because of their martial ability. Meanwhile, the great men are all starting to decline. So this is like the people who like usher in the Silver Age because these are the people who are like derelict in their duty of like keeping order because they don't care about the old traditions. So they don't keep like the, like, the degenerate people like the women and uh, uh, the priests uh, they don't keep them out. They don't, like, shut them out of the political process. They they let it go on. This takes, like, thousands of years to play out. And then, of course, like, once the Silver Age, and uh, what's his name? Augustine was the perfect type of guy to bring up. He is, like, the priest bugman uh, uh, par excellence. So his whole thing, uh, he's got, like, the whole, like, Gnostic perspective. I know, like, Gnosticism was a heresy. But the thing about Gnosticism is that, like, matter is completely profane and is completely cut off from uh, 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 divinity. And this is the wasteland. This is, like, the wasteland that's ushered in, right, by the, um, the Silver Age, which, I don't know. I'm kind of running out of steam here. But I hope I make my point clear. It all starts over again. Chaos ensues. The Roman Empire collapses. Uh, we go back to the primordial soup. And then we go back into a dark age. And the dark age is when uh, the golden order happens again. Because people like the Merovingians and the Carolingians come along. And they reestablish control. And the whole cycle starts again. And it starts a whole new civilization and culture. I see Spurgler's got his hand up. Yeah, hey guys. Uh... So I just wanted to back up a little bit. So first, you said that you thought that Hesiod might have had some sort of influence on Spangler. Uh, I don't know if it's a direct influence. I mean, he certainly read Spang or he certainly read Hesiod, and there's definitely elements of that there. But I think we can do that work maybe and like kind of tease out the way in which Spangler's morphology of history is kind of analogous. So, 
I'm kind of going to some of the, like the the tables in the back that we were talking about earlier today. Uh, they're just really great if anybody's interested. Uh, just reading these tables at the back of Decline of the West, they just kind of give a great little rundown. So for Hesiod, I forget the exact uh, like stages. We'll just say it's like the the earlier one, the Golden Age or whatever. So for Spangler, he says that this would probably be spring. So for him. It's rural intuitive, like Incel Gamer was saying. It's very deeply connected to uh, the countryside and the life of the countryside and uh, the first estate as it was in the, the countryside. So it's based on great creations of the newly awakened and dream-heavy soul. And just that uh, imagery is just so powerful. I don't know if you saw it, but earlier today, Corsair... Uh, also known as the last pirate, he had some tweets talking about it. So when a culture is born, when it enters into its, we'll say its spring era or its golden age, however you want to put it, it's almost like a child waking up and realizing its own existence. And immediately uh, there's this sense of death anxiety that it kind of has. You know, it's the child that awakens and is just afraid of the dark. It has all these childlike um, you know, characteristics, for lack of a better world, uh, word. So part of it is also the birth of a myth of the grand style, expressing a new God feeling, world fear, world longing. I think that kind of also goes to what you guys were saying, that the birth of a golden age is it's a, an intensely mythological uh, epic or era where the sort of things that people are, you know, interested in and are concerned about are, you know, the mythological, uh, you know, the mythos has not yet been replaced by the logos. Like, Ashley, you're talking about uh, Nietzsche and the birth of tragedy, you know, early on in Greek culture, we'll say the, the pre-Socratic society was one largely characterized by a mythos that mythology ruled. But once the Socratic man enters stage, and this isn't just for the Greeks, but for all cultures, you know, for the Chinese, it was Lao Tzu. Uh, for the Faustian West, it was Rousseau. But once the Socratic man enters the stage, you know, that mythos of the springtime and summertime culture, that starts to get rationalized away. It becomes sterilized. And what you have is the transition from a mythos into a logos. And, you know, this is all, I'll wrap it up here real quick. Is This is all just the same kind of thing that Spengler talks about over and over uh, it's all just a steady progression from the rural, f- from the intuitive, to the slowly becoming more rational, you know, a progression from the aristocratic to the democratic, from the few great to the to the many vulgar. Uh, I, I hope that just kind of, you know, kind of brings Spangler up into a bit more context. I hope uh, someone can go off of that. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I want finally just to come in with, what I said, I didn't mean to cut you off so much, but um, let me see here. Spurgler sent me a a chart from Spengler, and now I can't find it. <clears throat> but what I wanted to say, just as an addendum to my whole rant there, I wanted to bring the entire classical world into this uh, mythological cycle, but it's like way too much. But I just wanted to point out that the springtime of culture for, for Spengler, because those who haven't read Spengler need to know that he differentiates between culture and civilization and that there's a culture phase 
that like everything is like created and built up and established. And then there's a civilization phase where like nothing new is really created or added. Uh, it's just like a repetition of all the things that were already in place, like the law, the religion, the economic system, the literature, sculpture, art, everything, music. Uh, during the civilization phase, it's much more about like building up like the actual infrastructure of society and the economy, like accumulating rather than actually like establishing itself and like determining its form. So for uh, the classical world, I think the transition to the civilization phase is really probably, uh, he says it in the book, I can't remember. I'm pretty sure he says, though, it's Alexander and the establishment of the Hellenistic Empire. And for us, I actually don't know exactly when he says it is. Spurgler, you can help me out with this. I think it's when America it's... becomes ascendant. Not quite. So it's when Napoleon comes into being. So the way it ah, works yes. is that, you know, for a long time, the way in which a king would legitimate his rule was the idea of a divine right to a rule, right? So the king anointed, or sorry, God anointed the king to rule. The significance of Napoleon coming in and him, uh, you know, presiding over his own coronation and crowning himself emperor rather than the clergy is that that is a severance between, um, you know, the clergy uh, or God deciding who rules. So that is no longer the case. And here we entered a, uh, a sterilized and rationalized uh, politics. All right, perfect. Thank you. Um, so let me just make this comment on this chart that you sent me that's in Decline of the West uh, to Final Age Warlord's point, which is that when the springtime happens, it's like, uh, the birth of the grand style, expressing a new God feeling, world fear, world longing. So it's like they're no longer like in the chaotic state of like just existing. Like they're beginning to do the work of like building a culture and establishing themselves as a culture and eventually a civilization. And uh, it says that there's still uh, – where is this quote? Hang on. He's saying that it's like as if waking up from a dream. It's like this, the, the feeling of like the dream state is still like lingering and they feel like they're waking up out of mythology. This was the point I was trying to make before about like uh, the time of Homer and the time of the Iliad and the Odyssey being like the golden age or the inception point for the classical civilization. Because uh, for the time of Achilles and Agamemnon themselves – like in the story, they live in the world of myth. The gods, uh, what the gods are doing and what the gods want are a very central deterministic aspect of the story. And they communicate with the people in the story. And the actions of the people in the story uh, gain or like put them out of favor of the gods. So there's no separation from the material plane and the uh, uh, the spiritual plane. They're in continuous communication with each other. And in fact, the spiritual plane is actually like dictating what happens on the material plane. Contrast this to what I was saying about the wasteland, which comes way, way later, you know, thousands of years later in late Rome, 
where you have like a Gnostic faith cropping up where they're saying there is no access, there is no recourse to the divine or the sacred at all on the material plane. You have to die in order to commune with the sacred. Um, so this is what Nietzsche is talking about, about slave morality, right? Slave morality comes in and like takes over and becomes the morality of the day where you like literally can't get the favor of the gods no matter what you do unless you die and contrast that with you know the earlier time and like this is the decline you know what i'm saying this is the long gradual decline into not just decadence but the wasteland uh and nihilism and materialism so good we have some more speakers coming in uh hope, hopefully i made that clear I have to find this picture that Spurdler sent me. I, I might need you to send it to me again because uh, I think I just put it up there. If you can see it. Oh, perfect. Yes, there it is. This is what I was looking for. <laughs> this is where Spangler like lays it all out. Um, my copy of the client of the West didn't have this chart in it. And I read the book like three years ago and I'm just now looking at it tonight for the first time. And it like, it makes everything so concise and perfect. Um, and it just tracks, you know, along the civilizational continuum. But uh, who else? Who else has something to say? Herodontian is here. He's got to come in. Herodotian, sorry. I was sending your Yaki essay to my philosophy chat today, Herod. Finally, do you have a, uh, a rejoinder? Um, I don't know if you're still there. But uh, sorry, I was trying to type a post. Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't have anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I had something. So, uh, oh, I remember. Okay. So, one of the things that somebody said earlier, somebody was saying that it wasn't the theogony that had the ages of man section. I, I guess it's, if it's not that it has to be works and days. Oh, it, oh yeah. The, I was saying, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, the theogony is, a, is like different from, uh, the ages of men. They're usually included together though, but they're kind of like yeah. separate, but work. Yeah. His work is so yeah, short. The theogony so. is only like 10 pages or no, uh, uh, yeah. ages of men is only like 10 pages. Theogony is like 20 to 30. So, I, I think I can riff on this a little bit. So either way, you know, all of Hesiod's work actually is a perfect manifestation of springtime consciousness or, you know, the springtime mythos, I guess. So, you know, Spengler literally says it's the birth of a myth of the grand style expressing a new God feeling, world fear and world longing. That's exactly what's going on in the theogony, literally the birth of the gods. Um, in some sense, it's a cosmogony, you know, the birth of the universe uh, he see it in this, he's really describing, but here's what I'll say. He's an artifact of the Greek mind entering into a primitive and mythological state. You know, you can see the way in which, you know, one Titan uh, emerges from another and how one God emerges from another. You know, I forget the whole convoluted genealogy of all the gods, but you can see this in the way in which the Greeks, or at least Hesiod, was organizing this like constellation of the gods. It, it really is exactly that. It's the birth of a new religion and uh, a very serious religious sentiment. And you know that also gets paired with some of these even older uh, Homeric 
stories, which are essentially, you know, Aryan hero tales, at, you know, at some level, uh, that also gets paired in and they get kind of reworked um, by, you know, those great bards like Homer into kind of, you know, working in, into, they kind of become this like perfect religious artifact that, you know, perfectly encapsulates, uh, you know, the time. You know, and interestingly, if you look at some of those charts, uh, Spengler, he also says that uh, this is also analogous to the time of the Vedic religions in India. So for the Vedic religions and the, also the emergence of uh, Aryan hero tales, you know, I'm not an India cell, so I, I don't really know exactly what it is. I, I assume it's the Rig Veda. Um, I don't know if anybody knows it though, for sure. It is the Rig Veda. Rig, Rig Veda was the first. That's the Aryan All right. Yeah. That's the is that also like warrior hero? Yeah, that's the that's the you know the the, the infamous um, Indra meeting uh, the Dasi at the at the Ganges. That's from that's from the Rig Veda. Yeah, yeah, yeah so okay. it, yeah. It, it, Indra was the prime god of that time. Yeah, and like what Astral was saying, it's a completely different feeling from the age of uh, the Gnostics. You know, for me, when I think of the Gnostics, it's really a uh, you know, life-denying religion in some ways. You know, it absolutely is that, and it's kind of a bit more um, indicative of what Spengler would probably say. It's like a second religiousness, which is like this like real weariness with life, and you, you know, just like how humans after they've lived long enough, at some point, you know, they just want to go to sleep and die. And it's the same thing with a culture or a civilization. You know, when you're awake long enough, at some point, man, you just you just want to kind of go to sleep. And it's the same thing with these cultures. And I think that's partly what gnosticism represents it's a little less of a springtime religion and it's like a very grim winter religion yeah um it looks like petruvian's having problems here sure if you can hear me you should drop out and then come back but anyway um i forgot what i was gonna say now Give me a second. Um, Somebody else come in. Yeah, I I just kind of wanted to ask a question. I heard earlier about, you know, I don't know if I'd be happy in this time period, X, Y, Z, which is the best for individual happiness. And I think that kind of misses the mark on what the traditionalist mindset is. And the whole point is that it um, it transcends history itself in favor for eternal ideals. So, um, the, whether or not people were happy in the time period is kind of irrelevant to the idea of was the state or was the society acting towards um, greater ideals, you know, that are removed from themselves. And that's also where Spangler is definitely not of someone like Evola or uh, Gwenon because he's the relativist here. He's going to say, and if you're born into winter, you better lean into that Caesarism thing pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like, I, I, it's like tough to talk about these things because people like to try to pinpoint um, times in history, like, oh, it was declining here, it was declining there. And that's kind of missing the mark on, a, like, in terms of like metaphysical philosophy. Um, you kind of have to remove yourself from any, like, material... Uh, example of something and you have to argue is there a higher ideal that we have to work towards like does a state have the obligation to its people to be a higher um, state or the most just state 
to act towards the ideals um, that are in tune with this divine nature. And that's like, you know, bestowed upon us without our control. It's kind of just like this universal thing. And it's like our conquest to find that um, intrinsic nature. Um, and a lot of people, I don't know, they, they, yeah, I don't know. I'll stop there. No, that's good. You know, and Spengler does account for this, like this, like return to nature, this attempt to return to nature. And basically like Nietzsche has the distinguishment between the last man and like the, the, uh, tightrope walker types like the people who are just happy with the life that's prescribed to them by liberalism and modernity or whatever you want to call it. And then the people who are disquiet about it and are unhappy about it. And they try to see their way across the abyss. They try to make it through nihilism. But, um, you know, like in this stuff, the, the thing about Spengler is that you have to understand, like this stuff has to like play itself out. So you can't be a man out of time. You can't like do something that you would do in an older time that would work. You can't do that now and expect it to work. And this is why I think Mishima is like such a good example of this because Mishima like wished that he lived like back in like Imperial Japan where he still had like the ability for like, you know, honor and martial duty and martial virtue uh, and to venerate the emperor and things like that. And so the whole Nietzsche thing, like, I don't actually know if Nietzsche ever says this, but I've heard people talking about Nietzsche in these terms saying like, live your life as like an art, a display of art, make your yeah. life into a work of art. Does he say that? In a Well, well, before it keeps going, I, I'd like to say this is like a perfect example of, I think the misconception of traditionalism and, um, you know, Platonism and these types of ideologies. Um, it's explicit that traditionalism, again, transcends history. It has nothing to do with behaving in the exact mannerisms of history. Um, it's behaving in the, the same ideals of history. And that's, that's extremely different things. Um, it's this idea um, that there are these eternal and immutable ideals that we can work towards and there, these are progressive ideals too, right? You don't have to go back and like, oh, before there's iPhones. Um, it, it's it's this idea that there's a perfect man, and we can imagine this perfect man, and you work you work forward towards him. You don't work backwards towards like specific. Again, this is like why I said the whole pyramid thing. It's it's not no one's saying like, oh, let's go back to like when they build the pyramids. It's like let's go back to the ideas that brought about the pyramids, and let's build further now. It's two totally different things. Well, the only problem is, is that like you're now in a situation, you're in an epic where like all of these other elements have like fully ascended and like gained control and you can't really like go up against them and fight them. You know what I mean? Like you need, you need like uh, a figure like the Caesar figure who can come and actually like, supersede all of like the bureaucracy and the laws and the, the new customs that they are like implementing to keep like the strong men down uh, yeah. through this like web. Right. So, uh, you know, I say this all the fucking time, but it's like one of the most pertinent things to say is that 
Nietzsche says in Twilight of the Idols that liberal institutions are not institutions used to grant people freedom. They're institutions used to limit the freedom of strong men. It's to hem them in so that the degenerates and the weak can, like, make this bullshit world. Yeah, 100%. And <laughs> what, what I'd say is that the only difference between Nietzsche and Evola is that Evola prescribes transcendence to the Superman. He doesn't disagree that we need one, but he's he recognizes that they're they're tapping into a divinity that Nietzsche doesn't recognize. That's the only difference is that there is some sort of he's not you know the Superman isn't this formless being that is just acting out of pure will. Um, again, it's this the state or this being that's acting towards these higher ideas and these like they're they're eternal and they're good and they're yeah like. I always like to say people do things because they're good, not because they're bad. And and I think running away from this idea of a trend of a man who can transcend um, these things and, you know, accept this like, well, if they're using, you know, moral relativism, then we're just immoral. Like, I, I think it's impotent and I don't think it inspires uh, men to do great things. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Completely. That's why I think the Zarathustra figure has to be like a prominent man. It has to be a man of power. It can't just be like a regular dude on the street who like acts like Zarathustra. It has to be someone that everyone else can look to and follow and be inspired by. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's literally the only difference. It's not like there's not this this huge divide. I think sometimes we we all argue about it like there's this this massive divide, but it's just uh you know that's why I, I I'd like in the future for the argument to be more based towards like are these higher ideals and do they like do they exist at all or not? You know, pointing to different points of history again when talking about metaphysical philosophers kind of misses the entire point of metaphysics so you're never going to find the truth in pointing to like uh this golden age this this age it's like do you know is there beings that are able to have um avola calls it it's um intuitive intellect um that are able to transcend their surroundings and kind of like reach into the divine and pull out this knowledge and act in a in a higher way um, rather than just this, this strict will, right? We wouldn't, you know, in this this whole, this it's only about will. We wouldn't want a state to just act out of straight will and just power. It, it doesn't mean that they're going to be the ideal state. They're just going to be the most powerful state. And those are two separate things. And that, I think that's a much more interesting uh, conversation. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent insight. And the... For me, the way I understand it is like uh, I, I, when I lost my train of thought before, I remember what I was going to say. Spurgler was talking about like people growing weary or getting tired um, and sort of like wearing out. The thing that wears people out, well, one of the things, because they also get just pampered and spoiled and soft. So that's one aspect of it. But the other thing is that uh, using your rational mind to keep like, like order 
intact in the cosmos in your mind uh, takes a lot more effort than just like having faith that like things are being taken care of behind the scenes by God for lack of a better term. Um, so like when you take on like the responsibility of like rationality to order the world like through like a rational lens um, that takes like a lot more psychic work. So when you, when you become exhausted from doing that psychic work of like keeping like the cosmology intact and like everything in its right place. Right. Whereas before you didn't have to do that. And according to Vola, the way you do it really is through ritual. You And Joseph Campbell says it too. Like, if you just um, participate in the rituals, right, you're appeasing the invisible beings in the other realm who are, like, keeping everything going. And that's your way of, like, offloading the burden of being alive. You're offloading it and, like, regenerating yourself, right? So Nietzsche's whole thing about the will, and uh, this would be a great time for Vitruvian and Athenian to come in. Uh, I see Spurgeon's got his hand up, too. The will is a way to overcome this nihilistic exhaustion uh, after you and civilization are worn out from the burden of using your rational mind to keep things going. Uh, once that happens, once that exhaustion sets in, like, what are you going to do? How are you going to get out of it? And the whole thing with Nietzsche is like, you use pure force of will to do it. Now, uh -huh. some people say... Go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave um, at that. I'll let you go after this. I just want to respond to this. I, I think this leads to another interesting conversation. We're, you know, at the end of the day, when we're talking about these these higher buildings, these leaders, these Caesar, Alexander, we're talking about very, very specific people. And I think we our minds get wrapped up into the masses like they can't handle it. Um, and and again, the, this is kind of missing the point, you know. Evola, Plato, all these people—they didn't—they didn't want to force the burden onto the masses of this spiritual, you know, journey, right? They—they they believed in authoritarianism, you know. It's like so to, you know, to relate um, these concepts or these higher ideals to how the average person acts is again—it's—it's it's kind of weird because nobody who's who's vouching for these ideals wants the masses to even be involved in in going towards them you know the masses need to be guided from the superman not not you know dude i a thousand percent agree with everything you just said absolutely correct yes that's why i always say zarathustra is not a 12 rules for life self-help book for the average man to like read and then like do what they like use it as a guide to like how to live their life like that's not what that book is go ahead spurt I really liked what you were saying there. Now you know uh, what sort of predicament the uh, Catholic Church was in, you know, uh, with their their kind of war against the rational mind, maybe. I, I don't know if everyone will agree with this, but one of the things that Spengler says is that as, you know, as a culture progresses and as it goes from its springtime state to its summer uh, stage, is that you, you start to get the rational mind to develop. So. He says, ripening consciousness, earliest uh, urban and critical stirrings. So this is the time of Galileo, who starts to understand the world around him, also Copernicus. Uh, it's also the time of religious reformation with the Protestants, internal popular opposition to the great springtime forms. 
you know, if you're the Catholic Church at this time and you're seeing, you know, all the work that's being done by someone like Galileo, you're freaking out for exactly that reason, Astro, right? Like, you see, no, you know, what we have, our, our mythos, it works. Why the hell do we want to go about disturbing it? Because if we have to start using the rational mind to kind of glue everything together, this shit's going to come, you know, undone pretty fast. Um, you know, eventually it does, but that's just the nature of it anyway. Uh, that, that's kind of the only comment I have. But I also have a question for uh, Athenian, if, if he's here. So uh, Pendra, if I'm saying your name right, Pendragon, Pendragon, you mentioned that um, this idea of, the, of perennial philosophy or traditional philosophy, that it's kind of building toward this perfect eternal idea of a man in a spiritual sense. If I'm getting that right, I'm, I'm not really into traditional philosophy like that. So I'm sorry if I got that wrong. But one of the things that Spangler says regarding Napoleon and where Nietzsche probably differs on this, I think, uh, for Spangler, someone like Napoleon comes at exactly the right time, right when he's supposed to happen, like almost right on cue. Uh, but for for Nietzsche, if I'm not mistaken, and I think Athena can help me here, or if not Astral, I, I think he says that Napoleon is different because Napoleon for Nietzsche, he comes from a previous era. He comes from you know, a time that's almost been forgotten, uh, you know, something like that, that, that he's like this much older and much more vitalist sort of man that kind of just uh, erupts onto the stage unexpectedly and Europe is forever changed as a consequence of that. Uh, I don't know, just some interesting differences between Nietzsche and Spengler. Well, well that, that would make sense, though, because he says in Zarathustra that the Ubermensch is like, re like rebirthing the the i don't know the characteristics of the blonde beasts well he doesn't say that he says that in genealogy of morals but that's what zarathustra is doing he's like reviving this older way of being so i think maybe that's what he you're getting at with napoleon is that napoleon acts uh like a man from an earlier time when like all the men acted like that. And they were like the warlords who were in control of society. Whereas by the time Napoleon came along, like all the institutions were like, and the aristocracy was totally degenerated. And it's exactly what I said before in Rome was happening in France, that government offices were being just sold off to like the highest bidder because they had so many war debts at the time. So the place was like, the aristocracy was like degenerate, like, uh, Marquis de Sade and just having orgies and uh, running around with, you know, however many mistresses. This was like one of their main things was like making sure that they could have like a bunch of mistresses. That's like what they spent their time doing while the state was just being sold off to the highest merchant bidder. Uh, so, uh, and then of course you had the chaos ensue with the French Revolution. So Napoleon was embodying the spirit of a man from a much earlier time. I'm assuming that's what you mean about Nietzsche and Napoleon. I don't know if, if Athena is actually here, but if he is, I would love to have him comment. Well, I think that's like a, a perfect example of what Evel is talking about. Um, I don't know the exact phrase he uses, but you know, this, this idea of the Aryan or the aristocrat is a it's 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 more of a divine immaterial 
thing that occurs rather than a, um, you know, non-natural um, heritage thing where you're saying that like the state and the uh, aristocracy, they were selling themselves and they weren't living in accordance with the ideals. This is like perfect example of what he's talking about. Yeah, go ahead, Athena. Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say, I, uh, I I don't really remember the exact passages where he talks about Napoleon in particular. Um, I mean, just generally speaking, what I would say, though, is that, and this is just something that crossed my radar uh, that I've been tinkering with lately, is uh, it seems to be that on his first reference, at least in his published works, to the death of God, that he, the, the immediate consequence uh, of the death of God for Nietzsche is globalism. That, that I mean, that's, it's, it's the first thing that he, he associates directly with the death of God. Now, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to work that out. I talked about it a little bit with a disgraced propagandist last night. Actually, we talked about it a lot. Um, so whenever he releases that, but I think what it is, is in, in this, it's what he says in that same passage where he discusses all of this is, and I, I, I tweeted something about it, not the whole thing though, but what it is, is that he says in order for this to happen. And he says, this is the task of coming centuries is that they have to, is that what is needed is a very rigorous science he says i have to check the german but a science of the preconditions of culture um and what happens is that that doesn't happen and yet this movement towards globalism does happen and so that's that seems to be why it is that the last man is in particularly very very dangerous because he has no knowledge of the science or the precondition of culture and yet his culture is that one that is going to be global. Uh, so there, there can be no pockets, as it were, of resistance or something like that. Uh, so th that's, that's involved in, in a lot of that. Um, but for the specifics on Napoleon, I just it, it's been a while. Those would probably be more in his middle works where he's talking about that. Um, but I, I don't know. I might have something to say about it in Twilight. I just it's, Nothing's coming to mind right away. Yeah, real quick, uh, what Athenian's saying, um, Spengler makes in no uncertain terms that the aristocrats and the upper classes, those are the people who make the culture. Like, the culture is what it is because of what those people do. So, uh, what those people did. And I don't mean, like, the people now, or the aristocrats now, or the aristocrats in the time of Nero. I mean the hereditary aristocratic families who were there from the beginning, who are the very people who whose line was degenerated by the time you get to like a later phase, uh, whose line was degenerated by the time you get to the um, French Revolution, that these are the people who made the culture. They made all the institutions, everything. And then when they like fade or become derelict in their duties, as I was saying before, um, and you have this nouveau riche class come in, uh, the rootless cosmopolitan, the megalopolitan man that Spengler talks about, like these are the people 
that don't have like the culture in them that they just like live in the thing that other people built so they don't like appreciate it they don't appreciate the the meticulous work that went into it and the tradition and the long amount of time it took to build all of this stuff um and they're the ones who like i said before where i was talking about campbell's uh definition of the wasteland versus Evola's. Evola's wasteland is where there's no divinity. There's no sacred sacralness. Well, Whereas, I have a question for you. I have a question for you then. It's these people that don't, and, and kind of for everyone, is these people that don't appreciate it, how could they appreciate it if they believe it's all absurdity? How could they appreciate it if, they, if, it's, if it even if it just was these other people built it, why should I care? But the orderliness is what gives appreciation the divinity the transcendence is what gives appreciation but this 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 world of absolute absurdness is what breeds um this lackadaisical mindset about it where you don't care it's it's all absurd who cares well so you're right so, in the, no uh, I, I, just my bad. Re- I just want to respond real quick the reason my response to that would be that the whole reason why they don't care and this absurdness sets in is because the order and the traditions and the parameters that the predecessors, the aristocrats set up are the things that were like keeping them back and keeping them down the whole time. And now that they've like gained an ascendancy through their like, you know, uh, their nouveau riche status as like merchants or women who inherited from their husbands and stuff like that. Of course, they're not going to honor the traditions because the only reason why they're able to like become ascendant and have power is because they were able to like able to like break through and break out of those traditions and they go around smashing them all but do you see do you see where where this mindset is what breeds um theirs right they can't they cannot break through the tradition it's not a tradition it's eternal and immutable ideals that they live within the the original aristocracy yeah i agree and, with that and, and, and caste system and hierarchy is natural law that is divine and given to us through you know basically we we can't we can't explain it fully we try to and that's what the Faustian spirit is we 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 search for the knowledge but it's this again this idea of absurdity where they created this order and now oh we're ascending well actually you can't ascend because you're a lower caste being through a divine order that doesn't allow you to ascend yeah, they're not ascending in the divine order, though. They're ascending in the profane order of, like, civilization and, and liberal institutions. And they're they're gaining, like, political power. They're not gaining, like, divine favor. But, uh, no, this is a good back and forth, but and and I think we agree. But we've had hands up, and I think Spurgo's going to... No, it's all good. Uh, Incel wants to come in. Okay, I don't, need, I don't know when Faustian put his hand up. Fuck. We're just going to have to go uh, – uh, I, I have to give Vitruvian because he had mic problems and he just came back. And then we'll go Spurgler, Athenian, and Faustian. If that's not the correct order, I'm sorry. It's hard to keep it straight. Well, I just, I just really had a quick comment because I was just responding. I came in late on this conversation, so I I'm, I'm just want to clarify before I say anything uh, because maybe this isn't – you know, I'm misunderstanding what you were saying. Um, were you guys saying uh, when you were saying the people that like don't care and like now that they have power, they're tearing it down because like they sort of don't care 
uh, about the value of what the aristocrats, like the first two estates built. Were, were you referring to like the third estate, like the peasants and such, or like the third and the fourth estate? Basically, yeah, the merchants. The slave revolt is basically set off by the merchants who are like the beginning of the end, the inception point. Uh, and then you have the last men, the priests, the women who uh, really go on the ascendancy. So I don't know if they're third, fourth estate, whatever. But uh, No, right, right. The workers no. are a little bit different. Yeah, well, the only comment I really cared to make was was um, the one thing about the peasantry overall. Um, and, and this would include the workers in a certain sense, but, um, you know, Spengler talks about how the, you know, if we're talking about like the the high culture, like like the the beautiful architecture and the works of philosophy and the art and the uh, even like the the big expansionist military campaigns and like all of these things that we like consider to be the glory of like say the Greek culture or um, or the Germanic or whatever. Um, Spengler kind of says like the peasants themselves like they don't really care about that stuff. Um, because that's just not what they are. Um, and it's not really like a bad thing per, per se. It's a bad if you let them run everything. Like the, like the peasants don't have like taste, right? And, and the, 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 at the end of the day, a, a peasant just wants to have a wife and kids and a little patch of land so that he can kind of continue the species. He can act upon the genius of the species and keep things going. Um, and any ruler, when, when the aristocrats or the priests or whoever else come in and say, hey, we want to sort of take this manpower that you're giving us by living your lifestyle, and we want to direct it to, you know, build this great building or explore this frontier or blah, 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 you know, or we have this like God King who wants to act upon his will because the Godhead is speaking through him. When they do that kind of stuff, the peasants are more just going, Oh, okay. You know, as long as you're meeting my needs, I don't, I don't really care. Like the, even Machiavelli talks about that. Like the, if you want to take over a country the most effectively, just do not change the lady's way of life. Like you could go in and replace their ruler. And as long as you're not like telling them they have to change the way they live, like they won't care most of the time. Uh, so that's the problem. But the problem starts when, um, especially with education picks up and things like that, um, you'll have these peasants that sort of strive for more and they want to have a voice, but they like don't really have anything to say. And that's when like things start getting out of whack and things start getting torn down. And that's when you get this humanism uh, because they'll start saying things like, oh, you know, well, we all just need to love everybody. And, you know, life's just worth living and everyone has a right to blah, 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 blah. And it's like, and they don't. And, and you did mention, uh, the Western culture. And there, that is a, an even more contentious point when you get to Faustian culture, because the Faustian is all, uh, it's centered on the infinite and depth. You know, the paintings have more depth, like visually than like Greeks, like a Greek fresco painting or, or anything like that. Uh, do. So you have like experts, right? Like the idea of like art, having these really deep themes that only these certain sort of elite analysts or like art critics could really like understand right like you have to read all this literature to understand what moby dick's fully saying right that's a very western thing uh that's concerned with that with depth like that so it creates an even more uh or an even wider gap between the peasantry and the elites um than even you would have in like say a greek state where everyone everything is just sort of surface level in the greek state um yeah that, that's mainly all i had to say
Excellent comments. Uh, all right. Everybody with their hands up. Thank you so much for your patience. Uh, Sporgor, go ahead. Yeah. You know, I think <laughs> I'm getting this from BAP. I think he says this in some of his uh, Caribbean rhythm episodes that a culture is nature's circuitous path to a few great men. And that's exactly in line with what Insel was saying there, right? That uh, the peasants and the, 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 what do you say? The majority of the biological mass of a quote unquote Western culture actually has very little to do with Western culture, that it's actually the deeds of a few great men. Um, but what I really wanted to say, I swear this had, you know, a bit more context or pertinence earlier, but maybe we've drifted a bit more. So in uh, the preface to Decline of the West, when Spangler, he's talking about his influence or Nietzsche's influence on him, rather, he says that Nietzsche gave him the questioning faculty and that if he were asked to find a formula for his relation to Nietzsche, that he would say that he made of Nietzsche's outlook, and the German there is Ausblick, an overlook, an Überblick. And sorry if my German pronunciation is shit, I don't know German. But I think what he's saying there is that Nietzsche's outlook there, that the Ubermensch would come in and that he would kind of represent this transvaluation of all values, uh, Spangler, I think he sees that happening in every culture. So that's like why it's the transformation rather than it being this, you know, one singular Ubermensch. Spangler sees, no, I have a higher perch on this mountain and I can see all the different little cultures as they develop and they all have their kind of their own Ubermensch uh, as, it, as it happens that it's these these men that arise in the megalopolitan cities in which everything is, you know, you know, depraved, you know, baseless, just materialist, and that this is the perfect precondition for a man who will come in, transvaluate all values, and then uh, like a storm sweep across the culture or the civilization as a Caesar. But um, I swear I had a bit more pertinence earlier because of something that Pendragon was saying about the universality or something of these traditionalist men, and I kind of disagreed with that, or, or at least the Spenglerian POV doesn't see things that way. I'll hand it over to Athenian now. Yeah, um, so just a few things, because uh, there's a danger of things going terribly awry here uh, uh, with some of the things that have been said. Um, not that not that they have gone, but I'm just, there's, there's a very, very, I'm very, very cautious about this because I know where these th these kinds of things can go uh, if particular misreadings uh, flourish. Um, so you need to sort of keep in mind the thousand and one goals uh, of Zarathustra because what is said is that there has been a thousand peoples, right? Uh, and what he means by this is the the total of all world history is what he's meaning right by that. And all of them have these tablets of, of good and evil. Right. And what I think it was Pendragon who had mentioned previously was, you know, how do you keep it all together? Right. If, 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 if what happens is that there's a nihilism afoot that recognizes the flux of all things so that you have every person lives this metamorphosis of the spirit right where they you know they they carry the tablets right of good and evil uh and then they break out into the lion and decide they tear it up 
uh, and then with childlike innocence, uh, they remake their own values, uh, each individually. Uh, and you know, how does uh, how did the disciples of of Zarathustra uh, stick to this, and what have you? Like, what in other words, what grounds the thousand and one being the last one, right? Being the one that's not it's not going to burst out into a thousand and tooth, right? So, in other words, this is the fundamental political question: is how does the founder ensure that his teaching it continues right that it's not superseded by another one that could be radically different or something like that uh and on this point uh nietzsche zarathustra at least is a, is very very clear on the fact that uh, all of the yokes around the necks of the thousand people are themselves to be yoked together right um and so the thousand and first goal right which is the and he he has some fun with the german there he separates the he breaks tradition instead of using in German, you would say a thousand and one. That's literally one word, uh, but it's it's three words put together, literally thousand and one. Uh, but Nietzsche breaks tradition and actually separates them into the three words. And so there's an emphasis on that one. So the one is like a sort of a new beginning. Um, and what he says in that chapter is that the the latest one is going to be it's it's good and evil right is going to be the overman right so they they see to it that the conditions of culture are always and only such that uh you know it brings forth an overman uh now what that entails is of course rather cryptic uh but the most important thing to keep in mind there is that uh that's addressing the deepest issue of politics which is to say how how does Zarathustra at least imagine that these are not going to spiral out, uh, as I said, into a free reign of anyone being these metamorphoses of the spirit and what have you? In other words, the thousandth and one people that, that Zarathustra, that constitutes the political project of Zarathustra, uh, has to somehow remain a camel, right? Uh, that they can't themselves uh, break out into the lion uh, because the, the last of the child uh, that's going to have this innocence play of creating values uh, is the overman. Uh, and that's going to be the key. Uh, now, uh, on this point, you know, does Nietzsche himself offer a teaching or does he in fact balk? Uh, I would suggest that he does in fact balk uh, in, for instance, genealogy morality. Uh, he, he's quite clear that he balks on it uh, and that his, the teaching needs to be worked out a little bit further. But that's that, so the criticism that, you know, how did these things all stay together? Uh, you know, Nietzsche just fails or something that that misses the mark uh, because he's certainly aware of that possibility. Um, but the, the point about sort of the exertion of will or what have you is that uh, he, he says in that chapter to even discover what humanity is. Right. We don't even know what what mankind is. And so that's the objective of the overman is to make sure that that comes about and that's going to be such a powerful excess of as we say will to power uh that it's it's not going to allow for these possibilities of the kind of rampant individualism like we see among us today individualism uh nietzsche points out even as particularly he says the individual is the newest creation uh which is to say the individual is a product of the last man the last man is an individual to say you're an individual is to openly say you're a last man uh, and so that's going to be the problem. Uh, and he has that in mind of how to how to solve that, or at least he's aware of it 
but then teasing it out, I mean, then, you know, you have to go into uh, part two and then part three and, and even part four. Uh, but I just want to point that out. And, and just lastly, uh, because it is a kind of important technicality here, uh, it's going to sound like I'm being a word cell, but I'm not. Uh, there's a very big difference between an idea and an ideal. Uh, so now that's important because we talk about ideologies, right? Idealism. Uh, the difference is that the idea uh, is this thing that is and this goes back to Kant. Kant is explicit about this. And then the rest of German idealism carries it. Uh, the ideas are these things that there's something mysterious about the human that's drawn to them. Uh, and so all areas of scientific inquiry or what have you always lead to these very, very particular ideas. Uh, for Kant, there's going to be three of them, just three. Uh, but the ideal uh, is the manifestation of those ideas in the real world so this is the, so so that's the political project of idealism is to know what the idea is uh and then the manifestation of it in the political realm is going to be the ideal uh so, so that that that's just important as far as understanding terminology and, and i say that because uh these these thinkers were trafficking in for instance heidegger uh kant uh, Nietzsche, they're all perfectly aware of that distinction. So when you see, for instance, in their in their writings where they might mention the ideal, uh, just make sure you you know that that's the the political manifestation of something deeper, which is an idea. Uh, and what is the human's connection to the idea? Well, that's going to depend upon the thinker. But Kant leaves it mysterious uh, that we're just it, he calls it a metaphysical longing. We just simply have this metaphysical longing. So that would be the grounding of all metaphysics, at least according to Kant, and it, it does tend to stick with the tradition. Uh, but just wanted um, to point a few of those things out there. I'll let the rest of the hands go. I'll, I'll be really quick. But one thing I like about what you said is the the Superman, um, he, will, he will discover what humanity is. And I think that's very important. Discovery. He will not invent what humanity is because it's already there. You know, these these... Ideas. Well, well, hold they're on, already, though. That, that, that's they not are already there. Well, well that's, not, like, that's not going man to Man and woman, the... man and woman, good and evil, they are already there. We don't need to invent them. They are there, and we will discover them. And once we discover them, we can progress towards them. And that's, yeah, and that's, but that's not that's Nietzsche, a... though. That, I, I just wanted to be no, clear it's not, that that's, No, that's I know, not I know it's not. I know it's not, but uh, I, I think that just gives more insight to how I, at least, I'll, I'll say, you know, me specifically, I won't even appeal to um, the philosophers think of how we derive knowledge, how we, how humans, um, you know, go towards things is, is not this invention. It's the discovery of knowledge. And it's, you know, we keep on discovering a more perfect way to do it. It's already there. It's just, it's waiting for us to go out and get it. All right. Well, that's kind of a different conversation. But not unrelated to what Athenian said, but I want I want to stick to the historical uh, cycles. So, uh, Faustine, you you've been very patient, and thank you. Go ahead and. Uh... Thanks, guys. Uh, I'm not a Nietzschean expert, uh, so feel free to correct me. But I wanted to comment on the uh, previous themes of uh, you know striving for timeless values and also uh, also you know, the transformation 
of the civilization towards the Caesarian age through a Spenglerian uh, perspective. I think Spengler, you know, he's he's uh, best uh, he's best understood as a naturalist. Uh, uh, He's describing the life cycles, the inherent uh, life cycles, the growth uh, and, the, and the lifespan of uh, these peoples. And um, one thing about these Caesar figures, these you know, Superman-like Caesar figures, they're, they're writing the uh, emergent personhood of the entire civilization. And uh, not just the civilization, but you know, the, the the culture, uh, culture hyphen civilization, the, uh, the, the, uh, the entire, uh, organism of this, uh, of this people. So I think, I think Spangler is, uh, you know, he, he himself, he's a, he's a German patriot. He loved Germany, but I think he's actually agnostic about, the moral or even aesthetic worth of the aristocracy versus the peasantry. He's just describing. He's just describing the unfolding of the life cycle. Whether there's, you know, higher evolution uh, from uh, the growth phase to, uh, or, or whether there's degradation in the uh, in the uh, more senile phases of life. And. Uh, from Spangler's perspective, the transition to the Caesarian and post-Caesarian age uh, does attain a sort of pseudo-timelessness. And what I mean by that is the civilization, once it, uh, once it enters a, a senescent, senile, deadening phase, and that's in the age of Caesar and even after after you know the first Caesar, then the civilization could become fossilized, and these fossilized values are uh, what uh, you know we often, what we within the fossilized civilization think of as uh, you know timeless values. They're just crystallized fossilized values of this particular people, and um, so I, I I do agree with Spangler. Uh, in, in his relativistic view of things, that there is no true universal uh, value system that encompasses, you know, all humanity, uh, you know, across all the races or peoples of humanity. You know, each each uh, each of these cultures have their own uh, have their own values, and I think when you know when we're living in you know chaotic or decadent times and we're looking for timeless values. Uh, it, it's the it's the timeless values of a of a, a of a crystallized uh, final form of the civilization that we're really looking at. Yeah, and and that's a good way to say what I was saying like way before uh, Campbell's characterization of the wasteland is like this rote repetition of uh you know pre predetermined ways of being and spengler uses the term cycle through the forms where instead of like establishing a new form you're just sort of like reproducing them and you're cycling through them um 
and whatever I'll, I'll let uh, war crimes come in here i was going to try to qualify some of the things i said about why i disagreed with uh campbell but campbell read spengler of course and he's facing a lot of this on spengler i'd like to mention one last thing um the the uh repeated cycles that uh that you mentioned you know we have an example of that and we see it uh you know, in front of us, and that's the fossilized Chinese civilization. Their, their Caesar arrived, you know, in the third century BC. And since then, you know, they've had, they've had uh, uh, endless Caesars, okay, ad infinitum, including the current Caesar, the chairman of the Communist Party of China, and uh, so basically, they've, they've constituted a giant fossilized civilization with certain timeless Chinese values. The question is, for Western civilization, you know, we're, are we going to become a fossilized, gigantic vegetation like China? Or, you know, as is, uh, as maybe close to Western man, will we go down in a, you know, you know, God or Dameron may be uh, maybe precipitated by the AI. Uh, yeah, well, that's what Nick Land says, something, something like that. Well, uh, go I, ahead. What, well, I'll just say to the whole fossilization thing, um, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I'm misinterpreting it, right? But then then let's not appeal to the past anymore. You know, if, if that's what the case and these aren't ideals that we're working towards of a greater man, greater woman, a, a greater good, a greater evil, then let's stop appealing to it. Why is it that all, all throughout everything, everyone wants to appeal to these past things? And that's the whole point of Evelo, right? Is that you're not just saying in, you know, 1940, this happened and I want exactly that. It's the idea of what happened and the idea these people were working uh, towards. Do you want to work towards that idea or not? And I don't know if that's like, is that a fossil? I don't know. Well, in the West, we haven't arrived at the fossil stage yet. So the ideal is the ideal that uh, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, the ideal that you're saying we should be working for, it would be the ideal that's setting the tone for the future I don't want to short sell it by saying the, the future fossilized existence, but setting a very definitive tone for the next several millennia. Um, so we're pre-fossil. I just feel like we need to clear some things up. So not every culture or we'll say civilization goes into a fossilized state. Um, plenty just don't need to make it there. Uh, the classical civilization doesn't, Meiji doesn't. I think China and India are really the only two examples that do. And also the Egyptians, more or less, but even they collapsed eventually. Um, what Spangler's saying is that a culture is born, it has an inward necessity to express a certain idea. Um, this is spatiotemporal. So for the West, it's infinite space. It wants to express infinite space in its architecture, in its art. It's mathematics, all that. Once all that has been done, uh, it doesn't really have a, a 
raison d'etre, right? It doesn't have a reason to be anymore. And as a consequence of that, it's going to slowly die. Now, it might just be the case, incidentally, that the geopolitical circumstance around it, um, as it was for China and for India, kind of allows it to exist in this like uh, wintertime Caesarist fossilized state. But th there's nothing that's uh, you know inwardly necessary about that, according to Spengler's POV. So I just wanted to get that out there. Um, oh, sorry, the very last thing you said. There's nothing inwardly necessary about what. About a continualized, uh, fossilized state. You know, it doesn't have to continue as a, an ossified artifact or fossil indefinitely. Yeah, the culture isn't striving to express anything anymore. I, I actually want to. Uh, I want to. I want to talk to Faustian Fela about what he said. But uh, War Crimes has had his hand up, so please, dude, come on. I, I forgot. I forgot what I was gonna say. It doesn't matter. It was um, so long. Yeah, you no, no, but it's, it's it's not that it's it's not that I forgot. It's like so many things have been said that are interesting and that I've thought about <laughs> since my first thought. That I yeah, can't that, that happens no, in spaces, so we can we can kind of be a little bit more freeform here because there's Honestly, not that many of us. Yeah, I I just keep thinking about how all of this um uh is 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 so like prescient and 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 exists within like a there are a few there are a few things that we can look to that 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 these things exist and elden ring is one of those things right to sort of call back to the origin of this um there's you know there's some media franchises and things like that 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 still uh kind of call to these ideas i think that's a blessing in some ways because it makes it easier to explain this kind of thing to people but it you know you do run the risk of getting a little reddit with people you know i mean we're you know you're doing a dan carlin where you're explaining everything as uh darth vader's and the empire and stuff like that um but uh it, you, you know what i mean um but you know i i i i try to do this with uh with warhammer it has a it has a very similar um it is i'd say more Spen spenglerian because it's a it's a little bit uh, pessimistic like things are things are on a decline for a long time and they continue that way for a long time um but uh yeah i i i, I can't remember what my original point was uh uh now uh, i'm just i'm just sort of thinking about the, the conversation yeah it's all right i mean we can we it's getting late i don't know how much longer i can go we don't even really have to use hands anymore but i want faustian to try to back up or elaborate what he just said. And I really want the readers of Spengler to weigh in here because I have been firmly convinced that we are in the fossilized stage. Uh, and we probably have been since mm, post post modernity, really 1945. Uh, now the one thing I'll say before I let Faustian go, uh, if he wants to elaborate is that, the one caveat that is debatable, I guess, is the arrival of the Caesar figure. Uh, when does he come? Does he come right before? Well, let's say right at the beginning of the winter phase. Does he come right before fossilization sets in? Or does he come after the winter phase has begun and fossilization is already a thing 
I think that he comes after the winter phase has begun uh, or at the very, very beginning, at the latest, at the inception point of the winter phase and fossilization has uh, started. Now, um, one last thing. I'm sorry, I, I wasn't thinking this when I started talking. But uh, me and Spurgler, and I know me and other people who I don't think are in the space right now have discussed the passage from Nietzsche in the gay science where he talks about, oh, you know, I read it. I read it in the last space. Um, he, he talks about the Caesar figure coming in the autumn of the people to reinvigorate them. However, I'm not certain that Spengler is 100% modeling his Caesar figure on that passage. That passage clearly informs uh, Spengler greatly. But I'm not totally convinced that uh, C uh, Spengler thinks the Caesar comes like at the end of the of the autumn phase. Um, and also, there's a possibility we don't have to discuss this that we won't ever get a Caesar. But but Fausti, please, uh, I, I went on longer than I meant to. Thanks. Yeah, I think Spurgler made a great point that, you know, India and China are the most obvious uh, you know, physical fossils. And um, however, you know, Western man may very much have a, a different fate. I mean, uh, even at the even at the most superficial glance, you know, the, the characteristics and characters of these people are all very different. So, uh, you know, we may not, you know, become a giant fossilized vegetation like the Middle Kingdom. Now, uh, Spangler, I think, uh, I, I think, I think the Caesar figure in Spangler is, uh, is literally the embodiment of the entire worldview, all the people, that's 100% of all the people of the civilization. Uh, so that means every, uh, you know, every last petty kingdom, every last petty under the Caesar. And that was true for the first emperor of China and all subsequent emperors. That was true for Octavian. And we're seeing right now, you know, the American Imperium uh, completing a very, uh, you know, Chin-like, uh, Chin as in Chinese-like uh, subjugation conquest of all of Western civilization. And, uh, and subordinating every last single Western nation and westernized nation under the, uh, the control of, uh, of America. So, so I think Spangler's Caesar, uh, by definition, commands the entire resources and the entire emergent uh, personhood of the entire civilization. Now... He may not be, you know, a guy on horseback. The Western Caesar may not be a guy on horseback. And I've always joked, you know, our Caesar may actually be the AI. But in any case, I do think um, we're in the process of amalgamating Western civilization. Um, once we see every last iota of resource of Western civilization, every, uh, uh, every, uh, you know, residual energy of Western civilization subjugated and commanded under one command. I think that's, um, that's true Caesarism. Um, so I, I don't think we're at that stage yet. 
1945, I think, you know, started us. Uh, I, I, w I would compare it to like the end of the second Punic, or end of the, uh, yeah, second Punic War. Uh, started us on the uh, path to, uh, started America on the path to uh, Caesarian supremacy. Uh, but I think we're, uh, we're well on that path. Yeah, I agree with that, man. But I think it's very obvious that not only are we cycling through the forms and that all Western art forms are decadent, um, but that by the time Caesar came in Rome, they had been cycling through the forms for quite a while. I mean, even the Aeneid is like, a, a, it's sort of like a decadent copy of the Iliad. You know what I mean? Like all the things Rome has were themselves like appropriations of pre-established Hellenistic Greek forms. So by the time Caesar comes, like you're already in the fossilized state of like culture. That that's my argument. You have to be careful there, Astro. I tried to make that argument once to some Virgil cell and he got very mad at me. He explained in serious depth why the Indian was not just a repackaged Homer. So I don't make that point anymore, even though I secretly agree with you. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's not quite that simple. It's not repackaged Homer, but I talked about this elsewhere, that the, um, the epic is a sung, spoken form that is then later written down. Uh, which is what fossilizes it. And then uh, Virgil comes along and writes it first, and then it's red. So it's totally like backwards. So it is like a decadent fossilized version of the form. Yeah. If that makes sense, I the way I explain that. I think one thing to keep in mind here. Um is just for like analytical purposes, it makes it a bit easier if you try and separate the politics from the art, from we'll say spirit, uh, for a culture slash civilization, because they kind of, they all are generally speaking the same progression from a mythos to a logos. That's the way I like to put it. Um, but it doesn't all quite add up. Like, you know, you can kind of still be in the, uh, the peak of philosophical output uh, a few years after Napoleon, for example. So it, sometimes like the politics and the culture side of things, they don't quite line up quite as nicely. Um, so you get these like little weird asymmetries. But in terms of Caesar and fossilism or like a Western fossil, first I want to say Faustian, uh, you are wrong. The Western Caesar will come on horseback. It will be me. I will cross the Potomac River on horseback, and I will find Nancy Pelosi's husband. Uh, just kidding. But sign me up. <laughs> we ride it on. What is the the quote? The uh, Alia. I forget the the Greek or whatever, but the die is cast. But anyway, uh, so. I, I think really what is meant by the fossil stage, quote unquote, for Spangler is kind of just like a like a, a peculiar circumstance in which things are just left as they are for a way too long. So you think of a tree that's growing, right? So 
at a certain point, the tree kind of reaches its natural apogee. It's quite shapely and beautiful. It looks kind of like a perfectly large, almost like head of broccoli or something, right? But as it keeps going on, what you see is that it actually starts to get into the stage of gigantism where it becomes unshapely. Like it'll have like these large uh, branches that shoot out in these random directions and it'll you know start to rot at its very core. And, you know, the tree, the, you know, the analogy here, the tree might be completely rotten to the core, but it'll still stand up and it'll still be there for, you know, quite a few uh, years, we'll say. Same thing for this fossil, right? This cultural or the civilizational fossil. Uh, you know, the Chinese, they've been there for 2000 years in this like weird fossilized state. But then all it took was just one encounter with an extremely dynamic uh, Faustian culture you know, in the 1800s with the opium war. And that all came crashing down spectacularly, you know, just as the tree that is rotten to the core will come down in a single moment during a windstorm, right? So I think that's a bit more what is meant by the fossil. And then last thing, the Caesarism, and then I'll wrap up. Uh, the Caesar, so the Caesar comes in, first of all, he comes in uh, from the city. He emerges from the city. Like Faustino was saying, he's kind of like this, embodied uh, figure of the city but at the same time he's aristocratic uh, ideally he, he's not someone from the demos uh, the way someone like Hitler was you know Caesar he had a, quite the pedigree he was literally descended from Venus you know the god or the goddess uh, this aristocratic man he kind of grows up in this megalopolitan city it's you know nihilistic it's atheist uh, but what's really important here is the political milieu it's it's terribly corrupt which the roman republic was at the time of caesar you know money dominates everything you know just think of crassus think about all of the the uh the roman elections that were dissuaded by bribes it was or all the roman senate votes that were swayed by bribes it was extremely common at that point uh and the caesar he he sees this and he decides you know what i don't have to stick to um you know these ideas of the republic I don't have to adhere to these political forms anymore. I'm pretty sick and tired of the corruption of the money. And the only thing that is more uh, persuasive than money is blood. So the Caesar, he decides that he's had enough of it. And, you know, because he's completely jaded, he's transvalued all values. He just goes in there with the sword swinging and he's just ready to, to clean up shop, basically. So, yeah, that, that's everything. I mean, yeah, and that that is Zarathustra, right there. What you just said. But the thing about this is, ironically enough, this this takes away from action, and there has been action. This isn't just been a tree that's grown too big. Does is the nineteen sixty five Immigration Act uh, a result of a tree that just got too big, or is that is that actionable? Um, event that happened that has changed the course of america and the west like you know like oh, to say yeah. this is like the same undoing tree that makes no sense undoing a single thing like that it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if undoing the 1965 immigration act will reverse it or not it happened and it's not part of the same tree and the same ideas that america grew on so you know to act like this is just some 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 sort of like um, continued fossilized, this tree grew too big. It, it ignores action that people took that was subversive to its constituents 
And it, it, to me, it's just wrong. Um, it it well, wasn't. I, I, sorry, I keep cutting you off. I know that's rude, but I, I think Spangler actually is saying the exact same thing that you're saying. So the way it works is that as time goes on for a culture slash civilization, I'm just going to start saying culture. As time goes on for a culture, what you see is the slow degradation of political forms. So I'll use an example. So for the ancient Greeks, and this is in their earlier, we'll just say their more springtime slash summer phase. Uh, oftentimes when you had a pitched battle between two Greek city-states, you would actually have uh, members of the clergy or the priests uh, that would help kind of decide uh, who won the battle. You know, there was a lot of ideas of honor and tradition and, you know, using, or let's just say, sticking to these political forms. Uh, it's the same thing with, you know, not wanting to use two terrible of weapons in war because it's kind of like a, a destruction of norms or whatever you know adherence to these political norms they, they stick for a while but as time goes on and in the west you saw this with napoleon with his transformation of uh the grand Armée into this mass conscript army you see the breakdown of the norms you see the degradation of the political forms you know slowly but surely like you were saying you know those things get chipped away at and at a certain point the damage just becomes irreparable and you're just left. Yeah, but these aren't, these aren't representative of norms, right? When you elect officials that make decisions that totally transform the landscape of your country, it's not reflective of a norm or a continuation of a norm. It's a total diversion well, a, of the norm. It's a slow <laughs> chipping away. You're slowly chipping away at the norm. Uh, it's so yeah. extremely step. fast chipping away. Well, well, yeah, I agree. Yeah, also, the the thing is, the leaders that that are elected, um, if they're still like grown in the soil, the proverbial soil of the culture, um, they're still like like even the degraded Faustian uh, dictators are still Faustian. You know what I mean? Like Nero was still he he may have been a total departure from like Trahan, but he was still Apollonian. You know what I mean? So like you you it's like you can't divorce yourself from that. In the Caesarean well, yeah, age, I think one of the tasks is to restore the old morality. I mean, that's what Octavian did. I'm hundred years in the two hundred years before Octavian, there were many things similar to the 1965 Civil Rights Act. I mean, Rome, the city of Rome, was overrun by foreigners, Syrians, Jews, Libyans. Uh, the uh, countryside was completely uh, reduced. I mean, the free Roman peasantry was. Uh, either uh, insurfed into the great latifundia or you know thrown into the city as uh, proletarians. So one of the roles of the Caesarian age, uh, which is an age of action, is to undo uh, and to resolve by force uh, uh, the uh, the you know measures. You know you, you mentioned the sixty five uh, Civil Rights Act and and these other acts. Uh, these other, uh, you know, things of perfect reality that undermine the uh, uh, the society. You can't forget, though, that uh, Augustus's attempts to reform sexual mores in Rome were a complete failure. Uh, you know, he had to alienate Ovid, go send him off to a freaking Romania or wherever. Uh, it, you can try, you can try and make, you know, bachelorhood illegal. You can do all that. But at the same time, like you're, you're, you know, Spangler Decline of the West, Volume Two. It ends with like one of the greatest lines. It's from Seneca. It's the I don't remember the Latin, but it translates to the fates guide him who will. 
who don't oh who don't they drag so the idea is like you know the the destiny the inward necessity of a culture's development is going to happen and yeah you can be like augustus and be like well shit i want to go back to the the old days of the republic when men were virtuous and women weren't whores and do all that but at the same time like you're living in winter and I think Spangler actually doesn't get enough credit for pointing that out. I think he was somewhat a bit of a prude in some of his own personal ideas, but at the same time, you know, his message is to just lean into winter, man, just like prepare for the transvaluation of all values and do it, become a Caesar. But the reaction, so reactionary tendency is, is also part of winter. And the only way you're going to, Across the Potomac is to make those promises, however you know, however empty they are. And, you know, that, oh, hold on, let's. Uh, Herodotian, are you still? Uh, are you still with us? Or, your hand was up, but I want to get let you chime in. Yeah, uh, this is maybe late, just as a technical matter. I think someone was asking or saying that they didn't know exactly when uh, Caesar when the Caesar would come um, on the basis of what Spengler was saying, whether it would possibly be in autumn or maybe to winter. I just wanted to say in those circumstances that table one on the spiritual epic uh, in the deep winter of the spiritual ends at 1900 in the, in the right side on the Western. And then in the uh, table three, uh, he very clearly uh, says the formation of Caesarism and the victory of force politics over money occurs sometime between 2000 and 2200. So I just wanted to say that uh, it's very flexible when the Caesar could come. And at the same time, uh, it's like that's this period deep winter. That's perfect. You weren't here, but I was saying that I, I knew that these um, charts existed, but I never saw them until Spurgler sent me a photograph of his today. So I haven't even read them all the way through. Uh, so that makes perfect sense. Yeah, Arctos Arctos edition is really nice. I, uh, I'm i sorry for... Oh, does that have the charts? Yeah, so sorry to uh, Rogue Scholar Press, but uh, the Arctos edition is uh, high quality. Oh, all right. I'll just get those because I have the the uh, Rogue Scholar, and um, Sporgler has like I think it the Alfred A. Knopf, and it was he said it was like seventy bucks. So uh, it's good to know that Arctos has the charts in there. So good, that's perfect. So he actually addresses this then that winter sets in in nineteen hundred, and then the uh, because you could listen, it's too much to get into this late, but it's clear that the forms reached their apogee in the late 1800s. He even says that uh, classical music reached its apogee um, in the, in the 18, uh, 1700s, but then Wagner came along and was able to like eke out like one last like perfectly formed you know, uh, uh, set of music. And then he says that like painting is like pretty much at the end, but there might be some more to come. Of, of greatness, but but painting is basically drawn to a close. Uh, it's my contention that it, it ended uh, with the Impressionists, and um, some of the paintings that came after that were good and pleasing to the eye, but but they were a degeneration of the form, and they weren't they weren't a completion of it anymore. It, um, so 
and even when you look at like what America has been able to produce, the only thing America really did that was a evolution of the Faustian forms, for lack of a better term, was the space program. And of course, if you really look at the space program, the whole thing was really actually run by Germans anyway. Uh, but but that's the only thing that we did that's really like bringing what uh, Europe created like an adding to not not adding to it because he uses adding to it actually as a negative evolving it adding to it means you just like accumulate more of the same uh so if you look at stuff like rock and roll and jazz well rock and roll isn't like quintessentially american but uh jazz is and um you could clearly see how jazz is like a a decline of classical music you know um so that, that's what I think. Yeah. Well, so, the, well uh, the thing about America. Well, the um, if I okay, you go. Well, the the no, no, go, no. Herodotian just got here, so we gotta let him. We gotta let him. Uh, just in out. just in uh, the second chart on uh, contemporary culture. I mean, he says, uh, you know, towards the end in the civilization period, uh, he actually mentions American architecture in the. Uh, uh, like 19th century um and then like in the 2000s says that that's when you'll get the end form development and the rise of meaningless empty artificial pretentious architecture and ornament uh an imitation of archaic and exotic uh motives so like uh that's when that's where we would be culturally and then at the same time you get the caesar at least according to the charts can I speak a little bit on the charts just so uh, we're all on the same page? So there are three charts. So the first one is contemporary spiritual epics. So he's comparing spiritual epics. So what does he mean by that? He basically means um, ideas of the intellect. So things like uh, religion, uh, mathematics, uh, and philosophy. Okay. Table two is contemporary culture uh, so that's things like art, painting, music, uh, sculpture, and then eventually architecture. Three is contemporary political epics, or epochs, however you want to say that. Uh, and obviously it's just politics. It's the transformation of a rural feudal state all the way up into a uh, universal state that Toynbee would say of a Caesaristic uh, revolution. So that, that, that's the three. So. And the way that Spangler divides up each of those three is actually a bit different. So for the spiritual table, he does it by the seasons. So spring, summer, autumn, winter. For the culture table, he does it as culture versus civilization. And within culture, there's an early period and a late period. And then for the contemporary political uh, periods, he has it divided up as, again, culture and civilization. But even then, it has some further subdivisions. So, uh, I mean, broadly speaking, we can still, oh, I think my earbuds just went out. Broadly speaking, we can just still describe it though as like, you know, winter for things like politics, but it is a little inaccurate based off the charts, but it's still kind of the general same idea. Uh, one thing I'd like to ask, and this sounds condescending, but it's honest. Are we discussing the cycles of history, or are we discussing Spengler's cycles of history? That's, that's at this what point, I want to get at. We're, we're basically discussing Spengler, but we can bring it back to... 
but that but that's like my thing. issue with a lot of a lot of like philosophical talk right a lot of it gets away from concepts and it's this like constant appealing to like literature of somebody else that's trying to identify things and it's like are we are we searching for the truth or are we searching for the most accurate representation of this man who who wrote on it now we can use these these this literature to to help guide us but is it everything are they the word are like is it is it like do we derive our action from these guys who wrote on this stuff like is it the truth so a lot of times i'll say something and we'll go well spengler said or well nietzsche said and it's like well what's the truth what like what is your truth like i don't want to hear always just like appealing to like this authority and i kind of was i was starting to write about this is is it's this framework which everybody operates from now and it's the same thing of this Fauciism, where, well, trust the science. Dr. Fauci said, Dr. Fauci, you're going to disagree with Johns Hopkins, Dr. Fauci? Oh, you're going to disagree with Nietzsche? You're going to disagree with Spain? I got the writing right here, buddy. I can send you a picture. It's like, what is the actual concept? Where are we? Like, what's going on? I don't know. That's, uh, I'm ranting a little bit. I got to go soon. I, I kind of know I said some inflammatory shit right before I got to go, but... Well, I'll inflame things even more. I'm going to say that Spangler is right, that he correctly ascertained the inner uh, idea of historical development. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of what it comes down to. I think Pendragon has the right spirit, completely has the right spirit. Um, and the truth, of course, is this sort of, uh, I, I, I don't want to say isolated thing, that... I, I mean, I guess isolated is kind of the right word. It's like it's like reified, and it's like above. It's above like things that we can talk about and the books that we're reading. But when you're talking about history, um, and you're talking about the broad sweep of like human action and human like states of affairs, the only the best thing you can do is like decipher a pattern, and then you use that pattern recognition to like apply it to the future to like make some sort of prediction of how things are going to play out. Uh, so as far as I could tell, uh, Spangler has it the most right in that sense. Um, now I haven't read Hegel directly. Actually I have, but I didn't really understand it and it was only like 50 pages. So I wasn't able to get like the whole broad sweep of his, uh, thought. But uh, the way I understand Hegel versus Marx is that, like, Hegel is, like, totally idealized and conceptual, whereas Marx, like, attempts to be completely based in, like, material circumstances. And I think that they're both wrong. Um, one is, like, way too abstract, and material circumstances is, like, uh, way too oversimplistic. I mean... Spengler even addresses this and says, uh, looking at history as like a series of material contingencies is like a massive misunderstanding. So I have found Spengler to be the most correct in ascertaining the way patterns play out. Um, I, I would never say that there's like a, 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 a rigid model that you can apply to history. And some people do accuse Spengler of like kind of being like too rigid. I think he probably is at times. His predictions are a little bit too precise. 
But, you know, at the same time, leaving a 200-year window to say when a Caesar might emerge, I mean, it's looking like we're on track to fulfill that. So I get I get Pendragon's spirit, though. He doesn't want people to word sell and theory sell. Um, well, but in fact, I was just more yeah, the last thing I want to say. No, this is the last thing I'll say. My opinion, having read for an entire lifetime, is that Spengler and Nietzsche, to an extent of Vola, but mainly those two guys, like, aren't theory cells and they're not word selling. Whereas, like, Hegel and Heidegger and Marx are word cells and theory cells. So to appeal to them is not to appeal to the truth, but it's to appeal to their theories and their word cells, word selling. Well, I would, uh, here's the thing. I got a couple things to say and, you know, appealing to the truth. That's only relevant if you're someone like Evola, right. Who believes in a transcending truth. Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to all these other people. And second, uh, I just want to revisit something you were talking about um, in terms of America being Faustian and the last time being the moon. And I think this is a perfect illustration of how we aren't the same tree. It's a completely different tree. And I, I do think it's more of cultural Marxism that is driving us. This progressive, this progressiveness, it's a way, it's a way from this transcendent truth, right? That you're, you're bound by. You're born into this transcending truth that you cannot escape you are the man you are and you can't escape it marxism it's this asymmetrical lopsided worldview where you have to create an equitable playing field and it's it's and that's the only way to progress that's why we keep seeing ever changing they can never stop and their idea of progress is to is to level these things right we see it with minorities we see it with genders we see it with with all of these things and this is a way from the original Faustian spirit, which is embracing these transcending ideals or ideas that are man and woman, that are good and bad, that is beautiful and ugly, and working towards them. And that's why we can't be Faustian anymore is because we've we've gone into this level of absurdity where it's just like, who's going to be the one who, you know, figures it out? You know, and like I said before, I I'm under the impression, I'll just say me that it's already figured out. We're, we're running away from the thing that's already figured out. We know what man and woman is. We know good and bad, and we have to work towards it. it that's, that's... Well, look, all I can say is you, you got to go read the books. <laughs> I know you're not going to like that. But that's basically, I mean, the only answer that I have. But I have to close this space. So I want Herodotian uh, had his hand up at one point if he had something to say. Um, cause it's rare that I get to have him in a space and he's, uh, he's on point. So, no, I just wanted to address the, uh, technical matter. I mean, I'm sympathetic to what Pendragon says, uh, about the truth and that, you know, if Spengler says this, but you think he's wrong, then like say that for sure. Absolutely. Just, uh, if the question is what is Spengler, then like the seasons as he writes them in the charts, like, for the winter part regarding the spiritual stuff that's over in 1900. So, and then Spengler very explicitly says the formation of Caesarism is 2000, 2200. So like 
oh, that the Germans didn't win World War One or World War Two uh, wouldn't be used as like an argument against what Spengler's saying, for example. And uh, I also, mean, I, I get it. For what but... it's worth, the sort of things that Spengler talks about, the madness that you just described, Pendragon, of Faustian civilization, or just America, the all that madness, Spengler completely said that that was going to happen. And I know it, mean, it sounds like I'm reverting back to my dear prophet Spangler, but at the same, but he he did he he said that you know uh, what happens in you know a civilized era is that you're going to get a lot of madness. You're going to get you know things that just make absolutely no fucking sense. People uh, want to live in a fantasy world, which is exactly what we'll just say wokeness is, or we'll just say what, that's what uh, the U.S. has kind of adhered to in terms of its liberal and utopian ideology for quite a while now. It's all a fantasy world. And Spangler said, yeah, that, that's kind of one of the things that civilizations do. They construct these utopias or these ideas of trying to get to a utopia, but it becomes complete madness. So Spangler predicted this BTFO. Well, I, well, I, I agree, right? I, I don't disagree, but I, I, I disagree in the sense that that's what, not why we're reactionaries. That's not why anybody, that's not why ever Caesar came. Right. It's not it's like the idea like you're not really you're not combating the the idea of ideas right now. You're just saying, oh, this is how societies behave. This is how civilization goes. And it's like, well, is there this greater idea? And that's usually why someone like Caesar comes, um, you know, why the Third Reich came is because of this idea that transcended these societies. Oh, OK. Well, yeah, but that's a conversation that's not, for another day. Simple. But Pendragon, what you're saying is is praxis almost at that point. You're saying, like, how can we fight the good fight? And here we're just trying to discuss mythological cycles of history. I'm all for fighting the good fight with you and talking about how we can, you know, correct the, the, the bearings on the ship and steer this thing toward a brighter future or whatever. But that's a discussion for another day, I think. Okay. I mean, that's fair. Yeah, enough. especially since uh, I'm exhausted. I have to close the space, which I hate doing. But, um... It's not as simple as an ideal, though, uh, or it's uh, it's too much to get into. I'm just going to close it. Herodotian, thanks for coming, man. It was a real pleasure to have you. Uh, Vitruvian, let's just keep it going. I mean, this is a this is a tradition now. Uh, everybody else, thank you for coming. Thank you for your uh, contributions, Spurgler. You're uh, you're like the next fucking Spengler scholar. So uh, let's, uh, Herodonian, you're in our you're in our philosophy chat now. Let's work out like uh, what our next next topics are going to be for these spaces. I got to end it. I, I, it kills me, but it's over. Well, that was anticlimactic. It's, it's over. <laughs> I'm pressing end, and it's not ending. It's over, Astro. You said. All right, it. we are back, it. <laughs> uh, but it is so over. Set your system's volume control for slightly above. The normal listening level.